Bibles and, and turn with me to the book of Jonah. We'll be continuing in uh, chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 4. We'll read uh, almost through the end of the chapter to verse 16. Uh, you'll remember from last week as we began uh, the book that the Word of God has come uh, to Jonah, telling him to go to Nineveh, which is a major city in the Assyrian Empire, and to cry out against them because their evil has come up before the Lord. Uh, Jonah has rejected that call. He has run in the opposite direction, fleeing from the presence of the Lord rather than submitting to this call to go and preach repentance to the people of Nineveh. And so he's gotten on a ship that's going in the exact opposite direction from Nineveh to Tarshish, which would have been for, for Jonah uh, the extreme opposite direction as far away as he could go from fulfilling this call to go to Nineveh. And so we pick up uh, in Jonah at this place where Jonah is on the ship that is headed for Tarshish. Uh, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this portion of God's Word? Jonah 1, verses 4 and 3 to 16. Pay careful attention, this is God's Word. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous? He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Lord, you have promised that your word never returns to you void, but always accomplishes the purpose for which you have sent it. Lord, we pray that that would take place in our midst today, that you would accomplish your purposes in our lives, 
through the ministry of your word and by the power of your spirit. Help us to understand these things that have been written, to receive them with faith and with love, to lay them up in our hearts and to practice them in our lives. And Father, we pray that even through Jonah, we might see Jesus. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, our God is a God who pursues his people all throughout the scriptures, moving from the very beginning all the way up through the end. We see God actively at work pursuing his people uh, with a relentless grace to draw people back to himself, to bring people out of darkness into light, out of rebellion into friendship and even into the family of God. Our God is a God who pursues, even in the garden, after that first sin, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they had been commanded not to eat from, God pursues them. They run, they, they hear him coming, they run, they hide, uh, they blame, shift, they try to cover themselves quite inadequately as sin brings shame, and they try to hide that. But God comes in pursuit of his people. Where are you? Who, uh, wh why did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from it? Uh, he knows that they are hiding and he pursues them in grace to bring them out and to restore them. Later on in the Old Testament, there's a very concrete example of God's pursuit of his people in the prophet Isaiah. The Lord tells Hosea to marry a wife of harlotry, uh, a wife who uh, whom Hosea knows will be unfaithful to him as a harlot. The Lord says, marry a wife of harlotry and then go bring her back. And the Lord says, this is how my relationship with my people is, that I have, I have made you my bride, I have won you, I have brought you into relationship with myself in this covenant commitment of love and you have played the harlot. You have run after other gods, but I am a God who pursues. I will come for you. I will wound you so that I might heal you, bring you back, and restore you. And he does. He casts them out of the land, and then he brings them back by his grace. Jesus picks up on this same theme of God's pursuit of his people when he talks about the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one who has gone astray. And when he finds the one who has gone astray, throws him over his shoulders, and he comes home rejoicing that he has found the lost sheep, that the one that was lost has been restored. God, our God is a God who pursues us. Sometimes he pursues us in gentleness, and in mercy and in deep compassion, as he did with the prophet Elijah, who was having a bit of a pity party after his battle with the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel, and then he felt like he was the only one who was being faithful to the Lord and ran off in fear. The Lord shows up and says, you're not the only one. There are many others who have not bowed the knee to Baal, uh, but yet in the midst of Elijah's pity for himself, the Lord uh, shows up in what was often called the still small voice. He comes in compassion to Elijah uh, to pursue him and to bring him back. Other times, the Lord pursues us in unignorable displays of power. 
as with Saul on the road to Damascus, pursuing Christians to carry them off to jail and even to their own deaths. And Jesus blinds Paul with the glory of heaven, knocks him off of his donkey, reveals himself to him, and pursues Saul to bring him to himself. Our God is a God who pursues his people. There's a story about uh, C.S. Lewis and his conversion. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, probably what he's most known for, but wrote lots of other things. He referred to himself as a most reluctant convert. That in his pursuit of what he calls joy, uh, he went from kind of one philosophy to another, one school of thought to another, seeking this deeper thing that he never quite could find. And when he finally submitted and came to know Jesus and became a Christian, he said this of God. The great angler played his fish, and I never dreamed that the hook was in my tongue. He thought he was pursuing something that he was trying to find, only to realize that God was pursuing him all along the way, at last bringing him to faith in Jesus. In this part of the book of Jonah, Jonah's narrative, his prophecy, uh, we see God pursuing Jonah. We see God pursuing pagan sailors. Eventually we see God pursuing uh, wicked Ninevites and then pursuing Jonah again at the end. He's a God who pursues his people, who goes after them in relentless grace and mercy. And as we read of God's pursuit of Jonah in this part of chapter 1. Remember, we're to look at Jonah as in a mirror. The first, the Israelites who, have been, who would have been reading this for the first time and hearing the story of Jonah, uh, they would have done the same. They would have been urged to see in Jonah a reflection of themselves and been pressed to ask questions about themselves. What are we doing with the mercy of God that we have received? Are we being a light to the nations, or are we cutting that light off and keeping it within? We're to read Jonah in the same way, to see in Jonah a mirror of our own lives and hearts, and to ask those same questions of ourselves. But also to remember that ultimately Jonah doesn't just point back to us, Jonah points to the one greater than himself, he points to the Lord Jesus. What do we see happening as the Lord pursues Jonah. What application does it have for our lives? Or to put it another way, how does the Lord pursue Jonah? And by implication, how does he often pursue us? See a couple of things here. Uh, well, three things in particular. First, we see that the Lord pursues us by getting our attention. He pursues us by getting our attention. It's interesting that Jonah... Uh, is described as fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Those first three verses that we worked through last week, that was repeated three times. He's fleeing from the, he's going away from the presence of the Lord. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Actually, I think it's just two times. And that's repeated in our passage today. Jonah seems to have this kind of localized view of God. That if I can get away from the dry land, and I can get on the sea, I can go as far away as uh, Jonah thought was humanly possible at that time, but I can get away from the presence of the Lord. He's trying to run from God's command, run from God's presence, run from the call that God has placed on his life. And so the Lord gets his attention. 
with an unignorable disturbance in his life. Notice verse 4. Uh, it's kind of a break in the way the story is being told. In verse 4, it says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Let me give you just a little bit of background info on how, um, how stories are typically told in the Old Testament. A Hebrew narrative usually is written in a very specific way, where the beginning of a sentence is always uh, the and word plus the verb. And it's just kind of a way of moving the action along. And this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. So anytime you read the story in the Old Testament, and that's the feel that you're getting, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, anytime there's a break in that pattern, it's meant to get our attention. And there's a break in that pattern in verse 4. There's been action this whole time. Uh, but Jonah rose to flee. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, verse 1, verse 3. Jonah rose to flee, and all of a sudden, the pattern changes in verse 4, where the first word in the sentence is not a verb, it's the Lord. The Lord is doing something to get Jonah's attention. What is he doing? He's literally throwing a great wind upon the sea. He brings a storm on the sea. Jonah thought he could run from the dry land, run from the presence of God, even though he knew deep down that this Lord is God over the sea. He cannot be escaped. Kind of like, uh, I don't know if y'all used to watch that show Cops. Anybody watch that? Maybe you don't want to admit it. Uh, it was always striking to me as a teenager watching the cops show. You know, it's like a live action thing where they're following real police officers around in pursuit. Uh, you watch these people run away, trying to run away from the police. It always seemed foolish to me. Like, you know they're going to get caught. You know, they run into a fence, they try to climb over the fence, and then here comes another police car on the other side and catches them. Running from the Lord is uh, even more foolish than that because you cannot escape his presence. The Lord gets Jonah's attention with an unignorable disturbance. He brings a storm onto the sea where Jonah thought he could run from the presence of the Lord. Not only does he bring this storm, but sometimes the Lord gets our attention by pricking our conscience with reminders of how we have run from him. Notice uh, verse 6. The storm has come. We're told that Jonah has gone down into the lower part of the, of the ship, beneath the deck. Not clear if he did this after the storm came or if he was already down there when the storm came. Doesn't matter. Either way, he's down there and he's snoozing. He's in a deep sleep even while the storm is rocking the ship back and forth. It probably makes you think, rightly so, of Jesus on the boat with his disciples and he's sleeping uh, and they're all terrified of this storm. There's some important parallels that we'll come back to. For now, though, notice what the captain says to Jonah when he encounters him sleeping. He's gone down there to continue getting cargo out. He finds Jonah asleep, and he's shocked. What do you mean? What are you doing down here sleeping? Notice what he tells him to do. Arise, call out to your God. It's the same two things that the Lord said to Jonah in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. The very words of the captain himself would have been a reminder to Jonah that the Lord had called him to something that he was running from. It would have pricked his conscience that he was on the run from God, and even 
the words of this pagan captain were used to prick his conscience, to remind him that he could not escape the presence of God, that God was pursuing him. The Lord sometimes gets our attention with unignorable disturbances in our lives. Things begin to fall apart. Things get difficult. Our lives aren't working the way that we want them to, the way that we expect them to. And oftentimes, the Lord is doing that to get our attention. Uh, one writer has said that God whispers to us in our prosperity, and he shouts at us in our calamity. Why? To get our attention, to bring us back to him, to prick our conscience, to remind us, if we are indeed running from him, that he is in pursuit of us. Not only that, but sometimes the Lord puts us in a place where we have no choice but to acknowledge him, and by implication to acknowledge that we are running from him. Notice what happens. The captain has gone down. He grabs Jonah. He says, get up. Call out to your God. Maybe your God will deliver us. Maybe he will give a thought to us that we might not perish. Then they do something that outs Jonah. They cast lots. Now this was uh, a way of determining the will of God that was often used in the Old Testament by both the Israelites, uh, guided by God, uh, but also by, by pagans of other uh, religions. It was a common way of trying to figure out what God was saying. And here in verse 7, they cast lots so they can figure out whose fault is this? Who has done something that has brought this storm upon us? They cast lots as we know the lot falls on Jonah. And they all turn to him and kind of in a frenzy of questions in the midst of this storm. Uh, what's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? You can kind of hear the terror in this rapid fire questions, a set of questions that they lob at Jonah. He's outed by the casting of lots. Every lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The Lord has revealed Jonah as the source of this storm, of this terror that has come upon him and all of the sailors. And all they can do is answer their question. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. That's the way of saying he worships the Lord, serves him. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. He puts him in a place where he has no choice but to acknowledge him, and by implication to acknowledge that he is on the run. How is the Lord at work getting your attention now? You may not be in Jonah's position running in this way, uh, directly disobeying and going as far away from the Lord as possible, but the Lord is always at work getting our attention, calling us to deeper repentance, calling us to deeper faith, sometimes by disturbing our lives in unignorable ways, are you seeing those disturbances as acts of his grace, as his shouting to you in the midst of calamity, his reminder to you that he is a God who pursues you with relentless grace? Because in Jesus Christ, that pursuit is not aimed at bringing justice to you. It is aimed at bringing mercy to you. It was a mercy that Jonah had to learn in order that he might be better equipped to go and to show mercy to the Ninevites, even though the lesson is kind of half-learned by Jonah, he nonetheless has to learn of this mercy from God. 
I remember when I was a, a teenager um, many years ago, uh, one night I was having a restless night, was not able to sleep, and I knew that some friends of mine were uh, just in the next town over, spending the night probably having loads of fun that I was being left out of, and I thought, you know, I'm going I'm to sneak out of the house tonight. Get in my car and I'll drive over to my friend's house and, and join in whatever festivities they had going on. I was 15 at the time, so beginner's permit. I think I maybe had a restricted license, but this is like 3 a.m., so no reason I should have been out. <laughs> Snuck out of the house very quietly. Uh, I'll, I'll say this real quickly. Uh, these stories keep coming up, and my mom and dad keep saying, We didn't know any of this. But they knew this. <laughs> Snuck out of the house, uh, and you'll understand why they knew in a second. Snuck out of the house, got in my brother's car that I was driving, and, and drove from Lexington to Irma, the next town over, and somehow miraculously found my friend's house, because I'm terrible with directions. But when I got there, the light in his bedroom was off, and I chickened out. Well, maybe I could throw some rocks or something at the window, but you know, I was pretty smart. <laughs> I decided not to do that. And thought, well, okay, no harm, no foul. I'll just keep on driving and go home. But then I got lost. <laughs> Left the neighborhood and came out uh, in an area that was a little bit unfamiliar to me. I'd taken a wrong turn somewhere. And I just happened to pass by a parking lot, not once, not twice, but three times, where a local Irma Police Department officer was sitting you know, hoping that there would be no adventures through the night. But he saw me pass, and the third time he, he pulled me over. Of course, I had to call my parents and, and ask what I was doing. The ironic part of that story is that before I left the house, I got in the car, cranked it up, and I prayed. And I said, Lord, I know that I'm not supposed to do this, but please protect me. It's <laughs> foolish. But the Lord got my attention. Uh, he used that to startle me a little bit. And it was the beginning of his work in bringing me back to himself. Because I certainly was running. Certainly was on the run away from the Lord. Rejecting his kindness. Uh, rejecting his grace to me. But he was not going to let me go. That is good news for God's people. That he is a God who pursues. And he does not let us go. You might think about it this way. The worst thing that could happen to us is that God would simply give us what we want and let us go our own way. Remove his hand of protection from us. Remove his pursuit of grace from us and just say, you want your own way? Go for it. And Jonah almost got it, right? It, it's highly unusual, at least from what I've read, for him to have found a ship going to Tarshish so easily. For him to have had the right amount of money to pay for the fare so easily. And to find the very thing that he wanted to help him escape, to run from the presence of God. But God is a God who pursues. He gets our attention through unignorable disturbances in our lives, pricking our conscience, reminding us of God's call on us. And sometimes putting us in a place where we have to acknowledge him and thereby acknowledge what we're doing by running from him. Not only does he get our attention, 
But notice in Jonah's situation, he's beginning to teach him repentance. Jonah's a slow work in progress, right? And even by the end of the story, we know there's still some work that remains to be done. But we're starting to see some of that work in Jonah in this scene on the ship in the midst of the storm, where the Lord is moving Jonah's heart toward repentance. And one of the things we see is that he moves Jonah in some way, in some small measure, out of himself, uh, in terms of what he was consumed with, to begin to think about others. Notice this, it's, it's almost easy to pass over. I didn't notice it until reading uh, Tim Keller's book on Jonah, but he points out in verse 12, as the sailors have asked Jonah, you know, what are we supposed to do with you? Because the sea is getting worse and worse. The ship is about to break up. We're going to die. What should we do with you since we now know that you're the cause of this storm? Notice Jonah's answer in verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now there's just a little bit there, but it's enough to grab hold of. To see that Jonah is here thinking about somebody other than himself is the first instance in the book where he begins to show mercy to someone outside of himself, where he begins to have a thought for others. He sees that he is the cause of their trouble, and it moves him to, I think, is compassion on his part, uh, which, of course, leads him to say, I'm the problem, hurl me, just like the Lord hurled the wind and brought this storm upon them, hurl me into the sea, and it will stop its raging. One of the ways the Lord gets our attention and pursues us, rather, is by helping us to move out of ourselves, not be consumed with ourselves, but to begin to see others around us. And part of what that does is it reminds us that not only are we in need of mercy, but those around us are in need of God's mercy as well. Uh, and it raises the question, if I have received mercy from God, what will I do with that which I have received? It's the question that is going on over and over again in the book of Jonah. What do I do with the grace and the mercy that has come to me from God? And here Jonah begins to turn outward a little bit, no longer just saying, I'm not going to do this, I'm running away from the presence of the Lord, no way am I going to Nineveh, but he begins, he begins to look outside of himself in order to see others. Finally, the Lord pursues us by getting our attention in these various ways, by moving us out of ourselves to see and to consider others. And finally, he pursues us by providing a substitute to rescue us from the storm. This is Jonah's answer to the problem that has come uh, upon sailors on account of Jonah's disobedience. The only way this storm will cease is if I suffer on behalf of my guilt, if I'm, if I'm thrown into the sea, in essence, thrown into death itself for the sake of others. That's the only way that this storm will cease its raging, that the Lord must punish Jonah and bring judgment upon him for his disobedience. Jonah here gives himself as a substitute uh, he doesn't know that there's a big fish that's going to come and swallow him, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, he doesn't know that the Lord is eventually going to rescue him. 
He probably thinks, you're going to throw me over and I'm going to die. Maybe that's what he wants. We don't know entirely. But he is giving himself here, probably with the assumption that this will be the end of his life, but he is giving himself as a substitute for others. Notice how many attempts there are made on the part of the sailors to keep this ship from falling apart and even to keep from having to throw Jonah overboard. They're trying everything they can to survive this storm without having to kill Jonah, throw him into the sea. They're throwing all the cargo overboard in the first part of the story. They're exercising their religious views, calling each man calling out to his God. You know, they would have each had maybe their own gods to call out to. And said, maybe one of them will hear. Maybe one of them will listen. Maybe one of them will deliver us. There's this self-effort, throw all the cargo over. There's religious superstition calling out to these gods who are no gods. And even when Jonah says, throw me over, they row in verse 13, they row hard to get back to dry land. But they can't row against the storm. Uh, and if you know anything about being on the water, you know it was probably better for them not to try to row against the storm, but to try to ride it out instead. In other words, the only thing that will rescue them from this storm is the substitute death of the Israelites on their behalf. And in that way, we start to see a little bit of what Jesus means when he told Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were asking for a sign. He said, you'll only get the sign of Jonah. Uh, and then later he says, one greater than Jonah has come. In Jonah's substitutionary sacrifice of himself, at least attempted sacrifice of himself, we begin to see a picture of the greater redemptive work of the Lord Jesus himself. The storm, in many ways, is a sign of God's judgment for sin. Those sailors were no less sinful than Jonah was. We all stand under the threat of God's judgment for our sin outside of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We may try, through religious self-effort, uh, to get out from under that judgment, to remove the storm by doing religious things in an attempt maybe to manipulate God to win him over, to appease him by trying to maybe undo the wrong things and do enough right things to cover up the wrong things. We may try through religious superstition. We may try through our own moral self-effort simply to get out from underneath God's judgment for our sin. Yet the gospel tells us that the only way of rescue for us, the only way that God has allowed to bring us back as he pursues us. The only way out is through the substitutionary death of an Israelite. But it's not Jonah who deserved that judgment. It's one greater than Jonah, the Lord Jesus, who, unlike Jonah, obeyed the call to come. Who, before the foundation of the world, in covenant agreement with his Father, agreed to come, to become one of us, to take on our flesh, our humanity, to stand in our place as our representative. He didn't run like Jonah did. He came. The Father sent the Son, and the Son came for us to pursue sinners. He did not come for the righteous. He came for sinners. 
not only did Jesus come in pursuit of sinners, but the Father pursued Jesus all the way to death on the cross. Jonah could not really atone for anybody's sins. couldn't really atone for his own sins. But Jesus comes as a sinless substitute for us, fulfilling all that God required of us. In all righteousness, Jesus never sinned. Is a perfect record before his Father. Pure obedience without any sin corrupting it. And yet what does his Father do? His Father pursues his own Son, Lord Jesus, all the way to death on a cross as he pursues his people to bring us back to himself. God provides a substitute and sacrificial love for us in Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from our lawless deeds and to bear the very wrath of God in his flesh at the cross and to rise again from the dead as the proof that the payment was made in full. Notice, when Jonah is thrown into the sea, what happens? It stops. The sea stops its raging because the judgment of God has been satisfied. The same thing is true for those who are in Jesus Christ. The full penalty for your sin, for my sin, was poured out on Christ at the cross, which means there's nothing that remains for you to bear for your sins. Jesus has done it all. He has completely canceled the debt of our sin through his sinless sacrifice. And notice the response of the sailors when this happens. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's the language of worship. It's the language of conversion. There's a move from the beginning of this passage to the end where the sailors are terrified of the storm. And then in the middle, when Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew and I serve the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, then they're really afraid, terrified of this God who has sent this storm. But now, when justice is satisfied with the substitute death of another, their fear becomes a worshipful reverence of the Lord who calmed the storm. Jesus has fully Calmed the storm of God's wrath for our sin. His judgment against us has been canceled in his death. And our response to that ought to be the same as the sailors. Worship of the Lord. Exceedingly great worship of God. Offering here as they offer sacrifices and made vows which they would fulfill when they came back to the dry land. The only thing, the only thing, the ultimate thing that brings us back to God in his pursuit of us, that moves us to worship and then turns us outward towards others, is seeing the beauty, the glory, the grace of the substitutionary sacrificial love of Jesus who gave himself for you to make you his very own and has said he will not let you get it, but he holds us fast. If you have received
that love, have embraced the sacrificial love of Jesus for you in the gospel, how ought we to respond to it? Let me give you just a, a brief illustration as we close and prepare to come to the table that Jesus has set for us. I think one of the things that the Israelites first reading this and us today as we read it, one of the things that we're supposed to be confronted with is what we do with the mercy that we have received from Jesus. If we've embraced his sacrificial love on our behalf, if we've been freed from our sin, the judgment of God, how, how do we respond to it? In Jonah's day, and even after this, as people were reading it uh, in the years that followed, they had largely abandoned, or at least neglected, the call that God had made upon his people to be a light to the nations. To be the people of God on earth, the place where all the nations would see God showing mercy to humanity in Israel. They were meant to be a light to the nations, so that the nations would flock to Israel to know the true God, the one who had made them, and the one who provides forgiveness of sins. But they'd stop doing that. There's lots of reasons why. There's idolatry. There's all kinds of unfaithfulness in Israel and at least in Jonah's day, Jonah appears to be representing the rest of his nation by not being a lighthouse to the nations, but by setting up a fortress. We're not going to go out, and you're not going to come in. And in many ways, the church throughout the ages is tempted with that same, um, that same challenge. Will we in receiving the grace of God in Jesus, will we stand as a lighthouse to the world around us, welcoming, beckoning, pleading and inviting, conversing as we have opportunity about Jesus, conversing about him with others? Will we be a lighthouse to say, there's a way to safety, there's a way out of the tempestuous storm that is in your life, and it's, it's through Jesus. Will we be a lighthouse to those around us, or, or will we build a fortress and say, you stay out there, we'll stay in here. It's the question that Jonah will eventually leave us with, but he's asking it all along the way. But we know the answer, don't we? That Jesus has welcomed us to himself exemplified in the table that he sets for his people. He's not only welcomed us to himself, he's given himself to us in grace and in mercy and entrusted us with that very message uh, to share the good news of what Christ has done and to seek to demonstrate that same mercy that we have received as we have opportunity to do so with others. May we be as a light to those around us and not 